Hi, this is Adam Rowe, a global Methodist pastor welcoming you to Whole in Christ. Here we delve into the life-changing essence of God's love, exploring its role in perfecting us and transforming our everyday lives. As we journey together, let's unravel spiritual truths, cultivate personal growth, and discover how we can become whole in Christ. Ready for a transformative experience? Let's get started. Welcome back, friends. It is great to be with you today and kind of cool. I, as most of you know, I'm in Alaska right now. And by the time this drops, it'll be after, uh, well, after probably the time um, that you receive it. However, it is August 26th here and the leaves are already starting to change. I just noticed the first tinge of yellow. For my friends in Phoenix, I'm sure that there's some jealousy involved in that, but I'm also sure that as it gets colder here, I'll be a little bit jealous of everything uh, of the weather that you're getting in the Southwest. So today we are continuing our series on Romans, and we're going to be focusing today on Romans 3 verses 1 through 20. That's Romans 3 verses 1 through 20. Before we get into it, let's be reminded of what we read in Romans 2. Uh, by the end of the book, Paul has come down pretty hard on the Jewish community in Rome uh, for their desire to adhere to the law and to bring Gentiles into the church by forcing them to adhere to the law. So Paul has given them really kind of a difficult time about that, and we're getting ready to transition in chapter 3, because what Paul doesn't want people to hear is that the law is bad, or that the law was somehow unholy or insufficient. So as we go into Romans chapter 3, what Paul is going to show us is that the Jewish community is blessed because it was entrusted by God with the law, that the law is good, and as we get deeper into Romans, particularly in chapter 6 and 7, we're going to see that there was never anything deficient in the law itself. The deficiency lies in the human heart and what we do when we hear about the law, but we'll get into that later. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Romans 3, verses 1 through 20. That's Romans 3, 1 through 20, and I will be reading out of the New American Standard Bible. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words, and mightest prevail when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. 
For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Here ends the lesson. Okay, so to lead this off, let's see how Paul ended off, uh, ended up, ended chapter two, uh, chapter two, verse 29. He writes, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So what Paul has just stated to the community, as we discussed in our last episode, is that to be a Jew is to be one of the heart, primarily. Uh, when we look at Abraham in particular, before there was circumcision, there was his faith in God. And what Paul is going to explain to us later is that this faith that preceded circumcision is more important than physical circumcision itself. Well, this leads to a question, if you're of the Jewish community, well then what good is there in being a Jew in Paul's mind? And Paul starts today's lesson in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? And he says, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God such an important point here. If you don't have the Old Testament oracles, as Paul refers to them, you don't know what to look for when it comes time for Jesus to come into the world. We have always needed a Messiah since the fall. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, it fundamentally changed the world and it changed everything about creation. So there was never going to be a law or a set of laws that could set right what was broken. However, there were distinctive identities that needed to be carved out so that people could know what to look for when the Messiah, the Restorer, the Healer, the King was going to come. People needed to know who to look for. They needed to know what kind of qualities that person was going to possess. And so Paul's argument here is that the great blessing of being a Jew is that you were entrusted with the oracles of God, which we now often refer to as the Old Testament. So there is great benefit of being a Jew. It's why we can't just look at all of Jewish history as Christians and say, well, we've replaced it. You don't replace what God has given. It has been fulfilled. We'll read more about that later as well. Verse 3, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, 
though every man, man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words and mightest prevail when thou art judged. Okay. Paul has just made this argument that not every Jew uh, who comes from the line of Abraham is truly a Jew in a spiritual sense. The question is, um, does this nullify God's faithfulness? And, and Paul's argument, though he doesn't state it explicitly here, as we un, kind of unfold his whole argument, we're going to understand it more clearly. Paul's argument here is that the true Jews were never just people of circumcision. That was never the case. It's not like uh, now because we have the Old Testament, Paul is making an argument about what it means to be faithful. What he's saying is there is an argument, there is a principle of faith that runs throughout both the Old Testament and the New Covenant uh, at this time. They didn't have a new, new Testament. Now we have a New Testament. But if you want to think of it more in terms of Old Covenant, New Covenant, there was a principle of faith that pervaded both Old Covenant and now New Covenant as well. It is this principle of faith that is eternal, not circumcision of the flesh. And so if there were some in the Old Covenant who did not believe, that doesn't make God a liar. It doesn't mean that God is not good on his promises because the purpose was never the physical circumcision anyway. It was the spiritual circumcision, the heart circumcision, if you want to think of it that way. So if some in the Old Covenant did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. Of course not. And then verse 4, as we read just a moment ago, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words and mightest prevail when thou art judged. You know, it's obvious that just because you come from the lineage of anything, taking this out of even a Jewish context, it doesn't mean you're going to be faithful to your lineage and, and to your heritage. It just means that you have a lineage. Sometimes at most you'll get what we think of as sort of a heritage, like a, a, a social aspect of faith that doesn't really go anywhere. It's what John Wesley would refer to as a form of religion with none of the power, right? This is sort of what Paul is getting at in this text today. Um, the Jewish people, they had all the forms of religion. Some of them were faithful. Some of them were faithful. That needs to be heard as well. Just because they didn't say the name Jesus yet doesn't mean that they weren't faithful to what God had given them. But many were not. In fact, you might say that most were not. Uh, when Israel would fall, there were a lot of people that would fall with that. So it's not that God was unfaithful to his promises. It's that those promises were foundationally based upon faith, not external signs. So for those who were faithful to God and the Jewish faith, they were found righteous. For those who were not faithful, but were simply uh, found their heritage, lineage, ethnicity in the line of Abraham, that's not really the point. So Paul's not saying that there's no faith in the Jewish way. He's saying that there are those, uh, just like in Christian churches, that 
have faith. And there are those, just like in Christian churches, or what we might even go so far as to say Gentile churches today, who do not. Uh, there's an old saying, kind of silly, that uh, uh, sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. And there's some truth to that. Uh, I, I've often wondered what it is that attracts people to church if they're not intent on growing and, and wanting to grow in faith and grow in God. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure what that is, but certainly that principle existed within Jewish history as well, where people found some value in being connected, even if they weren't looking for faith or growth or anything like that. So God is still justified by making promises to the Jewish people, and those promises are not nullified simply because all of a sudden Gentiles are coming into the church. Um, the promises exist because faith predated the law. Faith predated the, the commands that God gave. That's why Paul can say that thou mightest be justified in thy words and mightest prevail when thou art judged. Okay, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? There's a transition here uh, with that word, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. Again, taking this back out to the bird's eye view, Paul is focusing on the incapable nature of the law to create holy people. And he's arguing that the law is not in and of itself enough because the law was not the thing upon which God foundationally made holy people. The law was there as a set of cultural boundaries, markers, and it prepared the way for Jesus, but it didn't have the power of faith, faith that always existed. What Paul's going to get into later, particularly in chapters uh, 6 and 7, is that the unrighteousness that sprouts up from human beings as a result of the law isn't the fault of the law, it's the fault of the sin nature that exists within us. There is something in us that naturally rebels. And so if our unrighteousness, verse uh, 5 again, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? See, God has to give us something to say, this is the standard. That thing is not what causes rebellion. So the law is not what causes rebellion. The law is holy and righteous. What causes rebellion is that when we look upon the law, our sin nature wants to rebel against it. Why? because we're fallen. I like to look at it this way. Um, I do intermittent fasting, right? And before I even knew there was a thing called intermittent fasting, 
I usually didn't eat breakfast. It just wasn't my thing. So, you know, I, I wasn't trying to find out, but I'm guessing for most days, I probably was on a 16-8 fasting plan where I fasted for 16 hours and only ate within an eight-hour window. When I became aware of intermittent fasting, all of a sudden I have this thing telling me, here's what you need to do if you want to do intermittent fasting. As a minimum, make it 16-8. And over time, uh, I've, I've extended that out a little bit, sometimes more, sometimes uh, I just stick to 16-8. But it's interesting because it's more difficult for me sometimes to continue intermittent fasting now that I know there's a thing called intermittent fasting. Why? Because I'm holding myself to a rule rather than holding myself to just kind of like, eh, it's just sort of what I do. You know, before uh, I would give myself leeway and say, well, you know what? I'm not doing it. Um, I'm just going to eat at nine instead of eating at noon. And I wouldn't think about it. And sometimes I would do that. Other times, uh, usually I would just wait until I wanted to eat, which was around noon, right? Once the law of intermittent fasting became a thing, the hours seemed to stretch a lot longer, even though I wasn't doing anything significantly different than what I was doing before. Because all of a sudden I have this standard in my face telling me, here's what you should do. Why does should make us want to rebel? Why did you shall not eat of the garden or, or of the, uh, the tree of knowledge and the garden of Eden? Why did that make Adam and Eve want to rebel? There's something about a standard, whether it's a holy standard or an unholy standard, when we feel like we should be seeking that standard, the internal rebellion within us says, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't like that. And then it becomes a discipline. It becomes a challenge. It also becomes uh, a place where we begin to confuse faith and law. They're not the same thing. So if I'm just, I, I had a great conversation with a, a friend just this morning where this can become so easily confused. You know, a lot of times we talked about, we talk about sanctification as the thing that results from uh, us having a certain disposition of the heart. And it's true, but it's not the whole story. So uh, in Romans 6 and 7, it also says that sanctification happens because of obedience. But what kind of obedience? It's not obedience just to the bare law. It's the obedience of faith that comes about as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. These things can be so tricky when we're looking at Paul, because I feel sometimes like when we read him, we're, we're seeing a discussion he's having with a community that we don't necessarily understand. So there, there are ways they're talking that don't make perfect sense to us. But we, what we can understand in this is this. Unrighteousness, going back again to verse 5, but if our unrighteousness, our unrighteousness in the face of the law, demonstrates the righteousness of God because the law comes from God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, 
why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil, that good may come? That sounds a little bit like our world right now. Um, I, I think of it as presuming upon grace. There are, there's a ditch on both sides. There are ditch in all ways of approaching faith. One is, well, look, um, when I break the law, when I am not righteous, God is glorified because we become all the more aware of how God is good. Uh, it, it might be like this. If, if I steal an item from a store and other people accuse me of unrighteously stealing something from a store, God's law is more clearly upheld and his righteousness is also clearly acknowledged in that moment. Because people wouldn't argue about whether the uh, I, I should not steal something from a store unless we all agree on some way, shape, or form that there's a standard, a holy righteous standard, and that I should not be stealing items from a store. Uh, I have never done that, but if I did, it would probably be peanut M&Ms or chocolate chip cookies for those of you who, who know me. Although I'm doing keto right now and uh, it's so hard. At any rate, uh, I, I, I digress. At any rate, the idea is that even if we transgress the law, God's righteousness is still upheld because people are very good at looking at the sins of other people and saying, well, you sin." We're just not so good at looking at our own sins and saying, I sinned. But every time somebody upholds the righteousness of the law, whether they intend to do it or not, Paul was kind of talking about this in the last chapter, there is a natural law aspect in which we all recognize that the righteousness of God is a universal standard and we can't get away from it. What we don't want to do in that, and, and what Paul is arguing here is, we don't get to then look at the law and say, well, every time I break the law, God's righteousness is upheld because people can see that uh, there's a standard that I'm not meeting, and therefore giving ourselves license to sin in ways that uh, not even the Gentiles do, as Paul said, I believe it was in the previous chapter. So what Paul is saying is we can't, as Christians, look at unfaithfulness and say that God's righteousness is brought out of that and be made more clear. What we want to say instead is that faith preceded the law, and because faith preceded the law, I am living in faith. I'm not looking to the law as my righteousness. I'm looking to the righteousness of faith. And he doesn't say it explicitly here, but if you broaden the scope a little bit and look at it through the rest of Romans, which we will, what Paul is ultimately setting up is this argument that you can't just break the law and say, well, God's righteousness is proven. People of faith, Abraham, all the Jews who lived by faith, their righteousness was exuded because of faith. Faith had a righteous effect on their living, the way that they did things. And what Paul's saying here is the, the law was not the point. Faith is the point. And so looking back on the people who failed to live by faith, 
and may have even been excellent law keepers in many ways, but didn't have the spirit of faith. Paul's going to argue in verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, what is Paul referring to? Uh, he is referring to specifically, uh, what were the passages? Psalm 14, 1 through 3 and Psalm 53, 1 through 3. Again, Paul understands that there is a universal internal sinful rebellion that we all possess against God. Some of us are battling that with the righteousness of faith. In other words, we're, we're, we have begun the life of repentance in Jesus Christ. We are turning away from that body of death, and we are turning ourselves over to Jesus. This is what Paul refers to later as being slaves to righteousness rather than sin. So what Paul is saying is, universally speaking, we are all under the law of sin. All of us have within us a rebellion that is baked into human nature, which is why neither the Gentile nor the Jew gets to look at the other person and say, I'm better than you, for there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Paul is not in this argument undermining the Christian's ability to lead a faithful life. What he is undermining is the sufficiency of the law to get us there. Again, remembering, faith preceded the law. The faith of Abraham and the faith of all the Jewish faithful was the point and the thing that led them to righteousness. The law in and of itself could not produce the righteousness of faith. So we've all had a sin nature. But we all have the possibility of redemption. That redemption comes through faith in Jesus. Even the Jews are covered. Uh, the Jews prior to Jesus are covered by that because they had a righteousness of faith. God covered over the things that they did not yet know about Jesus. But that faith was the seed of righteousness. And that faith led to deep righteousness. And so now we read in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
And again, it's not because the law is bad. It's just that the law is not the ultimate thing. It's the evidence of the righteousness of God. It's not the creator of righteousness. So when we live in the spirit of God, in the spirit of faith in Jesus Christ, we will evidence the works of the law. Why? Because we're living in continuity with the spirit of God, not just the external doing of the effects of knowing God. Now, there are many today who don't even try to live by the effects of God. Not that that could save them either, but they've just thrown away all pretense of caring about that at all. They have no spirit of faith, and they have no law of unrighteousness. They've just kind of shed all of it, which means truly they have no heart for God. Uh, they have no heart for the revealed evidences of God, and they don't have the Spirit living in them. And God be with all of us, you know, uh, save the grace of God, there go I as well. But for those with ears to hear, and, and just wrapping this up today, what Paul wants us to hear in this is that faith precedes law. We don't look to the law and say, I'm doing that and that saves me. We look to faith through the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. That saves us, and then it also means that we will uphold the law because we have hearts not of law. We have hearts that are bound to the God who created the law. So friends, that's all I have today. I look forward to jumping into verses 21 in our next episode. And I'm still trying to figure out the best format, whether I'm going to do it every uh, once a week or whether I'm going to do it twice a week. I think I'm going to try twice a week now. I've done it once a week, and that just seems like a little bit too long of a lap. So I'm going to shoot for Mondays and Wednesdays now to, to have episodes loaded. It's been great speaking with you today. I hope that you've gotten something out of this. I, I do every time we have our discussion. Leave a comment if uh, something struck you or if there was anything you heard today that was like, ah, oh, that was enlightening. And as always, God bless you. Have a great day and talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us today. We deeply value your support and we're always eager to hear your thoughts. Please feel free to leave a comment about today's episode. And if you have any prayer requests, we'd be honored to bring those before God with you. Remember, if you're finding value in our conversations, we'd appreciate it if you could rate us and subscribe to stay updated on all our upcoming episodes. Thank you for being part of our community and may you be richly blessed in your journey with Christ.